This is the Journal of Ecology podcast. I'm Scott Chamberlain. Frederick Callsworth is an ecologist at the University of Leipzig in Germany. I caught up with him last March to chat about his research published in the journal titled Many Ways to Die, Partitioning Tree Mortality Dynamics in a Near-Natural Mixed Deciduous Forest. The paper was published in December 2012. Yeah, my name is Frederik Holzwart. Mm, I studied forest ecosystem analysis and now I'm a PhD student at the University of Leipzig and the Max Planck Institute for Biogeochemistry. Mm-hmm. I conduct my thesis under Professor Christian Wirth, mainly in the field of biodiversity research. What problem was your study trying to solve uh, or what motivated your study? Well, um, I think I have to give a short intro sure. to get a final answer on that. Um, basically, to assess um, carbon budgets and turnovers, as well as um, to project species diversity in natural forests, which are both essential topics of my thesis, uh, we need a profound understanding of the three main aspects of forest dynamics, that is establishment, growth, and finally mortality. Mm. And together with establishment, mortality is generally less well understood. So in a forest, we observe many trees dying at young ages, with mortality risks decreasing when trees get older. While this is mainly a thinning process, so trees get larger, they require more space and resources, Mm -hmm. so weaker trees die away. And this typically leads to a J-shaped curve of mortality risks, so high risk for small trees, low risk for old and large trees. Mm. But of course, old trees might eventually die too. So, well, this old tree mortality in normal managed forests occurs normally in the form of a chainsaw when they have reached a certain dimension. Mm But in natural forests, um, there's something different. So it's rather a rare process. And to observe it, we need to go into well, natural forests, and we need large areas or long time frames to observe enough mortality events to finally get a statistical grip on this process. Mm-hmm. So then um, we can see that the mortality risk for large and very old trees rises again. So when we plot the mortality risk over tree age or size, this leads to a U-shaped curve of mortality instead of just a J-shaped curve. Mm-hmm. And in, in the field, of course, when we go out, we can see that large dead trees show signs of different agents that might have caused the tree to die. So this leads to the question of which processes actually kill a tree. Mm. Um, and of course not only is it ecologically interesting to know under which circumstances a tree dies and which processes cause death or increase mortality risk but also um, for mechanistic understanding especially if you develop computer models of forest dynamics it is important to get a hold on the actual mechanistic background the process Mm -hmm. so there are many older studies that overlooked the various mortality processes and thus were stuck on, let's say, an observational level. And only recently studies from very well-monitored sites in the US, like um, in the past like five years or so, they incorporated information on the mortality cause. 
And so here in our study, we brought two things together, the, like the frequently described U-shaped curve of tree mortality of a tree size. And so this we, we could observe because we sampled a very large um, area, like three, 30 hectares with many old trees on it, and also the information on the various mortality processes that were recorded during the inventory. Mm -hmm. And those different processes in combination, jointly together, made up this pattern. So what approach did you take to uh, address your, your question that you just, um, your, your problem that you just talked about? What did, what did, you, what did you do? Well, I'd say it's a um, very classical design, so it's nothing very new, the, the, the sampling design and, mm -hmm. and to analyze. So we sampled a large area in a near natural forest, and the inventory was repeated some years later. So we recorded, re recorded tree size, location, and in the re-inventory, how much a tree has grown or whether it has died, and if so, in which mode. Uh, okay, so I have to explain that the, the mode of mortality in this research is a concept that was that has somehow weaker criteria than the mortality cause. So whilst determining the cause of mortality requires a close look on each mm -hmm. dead with yeah expert knowledge on fungi and insects, and then also mm -hmm. the death end may not be too long ago, like maximum one or two years. Mm -hmm. So in contrast to that, the mode of death just describes whether a tree is standing or lying, whether it is snapped or brushed, or in our case also how the breaking patterns of the wood or roots look like. So mm -hmm. what we said, whether the breaking um, point was more in splinters, so which points to brute force, such as storms mm -hmm. or crushed other trees, or more brittle, so which implies the influence of rot fungi. Mm. So we applied the mode of um, death because our um, inventory in interval was eight years and it was such a large area we didn't look at each and every tree so long. Right. So still we had the information and on the tree dimension, the growth, its status and also the mortality mode, then we could model a predictive um, model that um, looks at the two different explaining factors, so tree size and growth, and we could model the individual risk of the various mortality modes. With, with these together, we could somehow trace the, the risk profile of a tree through its life history. So the, you said you modeled um, the, the response of uh, mortality on particular um, aspects of the trees was that so that was just statistical models it wasn't um, you weren't doing simulations or anything yeah basically these were statistical models okay. Uh, okay. but to, for a mechanistic model I might come to that because that's my current research but right right um, so how many trees did you like how big was the area that you studied and how many trees did you have to did you monitor these were like um, about 14,000 trees in a 28-hectare site, a mm -hmm. single site. Wow, that's a lot of trees. <laughs> um, Work. Yes. Uh, so, so this may, it may be hard to do this, but if you could try, um, if you could sum up uh, your main findings in a few bullet points, uh, what, what would they be? 
Mm, well, to me, the first is yeah, sort of a proof of principle. So I would point, I would say that the emergent mortality patterns that we observe may be traced back to various and distinct processes. So that we showed and we did it also in a numeric and quantitative way. This would be the first and maybe the second would be like species, different tree species differ in their susceptibility to one or more of these processes, which might explain long-term abundance patterns mm -hmm. and shifts in species composition. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and maybe one which didn't make it into the main paper, because it's more a methodological one, but this forms the most part of the appendix. We also developed a way to neatly deal with um, some notorious problems of this kind of studies, like um, strongly flawed growth me measurements, mm. as well the problem of non-random missing of a large fraction of growth data. So this, in the beginning, was a huge problem to me, but we somehow managed to neatly deal with it. We didn't like invent new data, but we could incorporate it all the mm. um, error sources. Could you briefly describe that? Well, um, this has to do with the type of method we used. We used a um, Bayesian analysis. Mm -hmm. So in this analysis, you can always um, include the errors and they are being propagated into any final model whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And um, the other thing is we imputed like lots of missing growth values from environmental data. And well, to describe this, it mm, we didn't have information like on the soil, but um, we incorporated because we had the information of each and every tree's position and growth values of many trees, but not every. We could somehow get um, spatial information of surrounding trees from those yeah. which value was missing. And this quite well could um, um, predict the growth value of a tree whose growth value was, was missing. Uh, okay. So you said it could predict um, missing data. So did you have, did you, were you able to, to prove that? So if you have missing data and then you go out and measure that tree or? So we, we could just randomly um, take out um, trees from the data set and predict their value. Oh, okay, of, okay, got yeah. it. Then Great. we can prove with the data. Okay. Great. Um, so you talked about um, a variety of mortality mechanisms, um, and it seemed like there were some associated with younger trees and some with older trees. So, so what what mechanisms were associated with with young and old trees? Yeah, that's indeed um, very different. Well, you say mechanisms. Um, or okay. modes, I guess. Modes. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Well, the, the, I think more interesting are really the causes, and, and there's some information on that. So, what when I um, give you examples, I will restrict myself to what is observable in these study regions. So I'm not talking about fire or so. Mm -hmm. So that is central Germany, and <clears throat> the process of mortality is 
mostly a series of unfortunate circumstances, not just a single one. So for unlucky small trees, it often starts with them being weak because the competition between trees is so severe in this stage. They lack water, nutrients and light. Then maybe they get browsed by roe deer or their roots eaten by rodents or falling, falling branches deform them whatsoever. Then maybe there's a humid autumn and that may facilitate harmful fungi growing in their buds or their roots. And then finally when they are weak, they might just starve to death. Mm. Or rather before that opportunistic fungi take over and deliver the yeah, coup de grasse mm -hmm. to an anyway weak young tree. But for old trees it's a bit different. So they are normally well established and thus have their crowns in the canopy, receiving enough light and the roots have access to water and also the immediate surrounding might be cleared from strong competitors. But the main problem for an old tree is its size. So for, for one it is emerging from the canopy and thus may be harmed or snapped mm -hmm. or, or thrown by a strong gust of wind because it's so emergent and so large. But more subtly, a large, a large tree has a large surface, so a long history and also is more complex in its superficial structure. So the large and complex surface is also a surface where wounds can be inflicted onto and attacks can occur. Mm. So in the course of a long life, somewhere a falling branch or another tree may injure the bark or a strong frost or summer drought breaks open small cracks and now a tree normally can heal this wound under normal circumstances but assume this happens every once in a while and that also maybe the summer is very dry or insects have weakened the tree by eating some of its foliage so it has been weakened mm -hmm. then maybe lethal fungi may enter the system right. so and if these fungi once have passed well, let's say the firewall, they may either slowly destabilize the, the stem by degrading the wood or other fungi, they may even quickly strangle the tree by eating away the live cambium. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, to sum it up, the, the problem for young trees often begins with yeah, multiple stress and ends with opportunistic fungi. And for old trees, on the other hand, they tend to cope with this, yeah, let's say, seasonal stress. Mm -hmm. But either brute force during storms kills them or the accumulation of wounds on a large and complex surface while with each wound offering a small chance of infection sooner or later leads to the advent of lethal or at least destabilizing, destabilizing fungi. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, maybe an important thing to me is in, in contrast to these processes, the, the concept of aging, like we understand it in humans and animals right. as um, a process that is endogenously controlled, <laughs> to my knowledge, is not yet proven to exist for long-lived trees. Right, right. So, so it's not proven yeah. to exist endogenously? Or, or, I mean, it's in, imposed by the abiotic and biotic environment that it lives in, you mean? Yes, there's no okay. endogenous. Well, I know from a study that um, 
they also they 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 really check this and they could reject all these aging processes that we know from animals at least for the longest living tree species the it's yeah it's also called the long-lived pine in the rocky mountains so this tree obviously does not age mm -hmm. Right. Of course, changes its form and grows and maybe dies also at one point, but not from an inner process. Right. Mm. So the, the tree death as such is not related to internal age, but rather to environmental disturbances and the form and the surface of the tree reacting to its disturbances. Mm -hmm. So... So the, uh, it seems like you studied a, a, a set of, of different tree species. Um, were there any notable differences between the uh, the trees, the tree species, and mortality um, modes of mortality that were important? Yeah, to some extent. Of well, unfortunately, there were only three species that I actually did analyze because they were a bit more abundant. Mm -hmm. The less abundant I couldn't study mm -hmm. in, in, the, in this way. So we observed this U-shaped um, form of mortality for beech and hornbeam, mm -hmm. whilst it was generally higher for hornbeam in that side, so which points to um, this species being in generally more susceptible to beech and also what we could observe that it be became less and less on this side. Mm -hmm. mainly because of increased mortality. And for ash, which also is a, let's say, very large tree in, in this side, or in generally in, in Central Europe, the form was J-shaped. So we didn't find an increase of mortality for very large trees. So I think that, of course, at one point, these trees also die out, but obviously they they can gr grow even larger than what we observed before. They have an increased risk of mortality. So, what, how do you plan to build on this research? Um, it, it sounded like you might be incorporating these findings into um, modeling studies. Yeah, exactly. So. I will not continue with empirical research on tree mortality, that's, that's true for me, but rather I have um, incorporated the general information of the relative importance of the various mortality processes into a vegetation model, which is called LPJ-GAS. Um, yeah, this I did by programming the respective processes, and this vegetation model I'm using to tackle some other research questions right now and in the near future, which are not directly related to mortality, but where I think that mortality plays an important role. So for me, that was very good to have this empirical study before. And yeah, basically, I'm a modeler. Um, and I think it's, it's good to feed models with like sound data and yeah, with, with the real world data rather than, yeah, the sometimes simplifying ideas of, I would say, like physicists who became ecologists at right. one point. In the <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so, so you said LPG guess. Is that, um, is that something you wrote yourself or is that something that's written in extension to another pro software? 
Oh no, I didn't write it myself. It's it's a program that's being developed now. I think for more than than two decades. It has several predecessors, and it's being used by yeah quite a big community of I think more than hundred scientists, mainly in in Sweden and Germany. Mm, okay. Okay. Uh, so so how how general do uh, do you think your results are? Um, and, and, and you know where 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 do you think you would see the same patterns or, or different patterns? Mm. <clears throat> well, yeah, the, the, the numbers, of course, they are unique to this this time and this site. And <laughs> well, the the pattern, I think, however, is general for Central European deciduous forests, where mortality of old trees is mostly due to storms and fungi, mm -hmm. rather than, for instance, fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there I expect the patterns to be more or less the same, also for other deciduous tree species. Mm -hmm. But I'd expect it to be shifted a bit for coniferous forests, where these species, they, they tend to get older, maybe because they are less prone to fungi, but in general are more susceptible to storms. So, so what, what, what do you think was the most um, challenging part of the study, whether you know the field work or the lab work or the analyses. Mm, okay, <laughs> yeah. Well, now I have to admit that as I did not collect the data myself, <laughs> this was done before. Mm -hmm. But the, also, this is the most challenging part to to um, to delve into that data. They were not optimally fit to for for this endeavor of this study. So. Mm -hmm. They had a different goal in mind, I think, when they did the inventories. So I spent ages with getting the data into form that I could handle mm -hmm. and also with developing a model that could deal with the data and render meaningful results. What I also mentioned, like dealing with the errors or missing data, this, this was hard work for me and also I had to learn a new statistical technique like the Bayesian analysis. Right. So that for me was the most challenging. We have been speaking with Frederick Halsworth for the Journal of Ecology podcast. I'm Scott Chamberlain. <laughs>